And welcome to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. This is episode 326. Uh, we don't have a title. Yeah, That's, that is if... the title. We don't have, this is the first reboot. How's that? Our, first reboot. <laughs> that's right. And this is Tony Bemis. Tom Lawrence. And Jay LaCroix. If we so. say something interesting during the show, that'll become the title. We can, I actually like the way it's done on some other podcasts where somewhere along the line, a phrase is said, and that's how you have the title. Because we're not doing it live, so we don't have to have a title before we start. <laughs> right. That's true. Sounds good. All right, so it's been uh, a little bit longer than we wanted to between recording the shows, but, uh, but we are back. Uh, it's the last day of February. Um, and Wait, uh, there's not 29 this year? <laughs> <laughs> nope. Time anyway, flies, wow. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, what's going on with you guys? Uh, we talk about projects and stuff. Uh, well, I don't mind starting. Yeah, go ahead. Just volunteered. Yeah, why not? Um, the two things, well, there's three things I've been working on. One of them is a little less open source. I uh, have, have done a series of Synology videos, and that's one of those mixed ones. Technically, Synology is based on Linux, but it's not a fully open source, but it does run Docker, and you can run lots of open source things on it. It does have virtualization. You can run open source, open source things there. So uh, I'll talk a little bit less about Synology, but I will dive right into the new version of PFSense. That has been a lot of fun. Uh, the version 2.5, I've been slowly rolling it out here and there. We're probably this coming week going to roll it out to more of our clients. It's only been out for a week, but there was a couple issues that came up with like Unbound and a couple minor quirks, um, which is always what's going to happen. No matter how much you test a product before release, once it hits the real world, someone always configures it in a way that the developers did not see coming. They're like, you do what? And why, why is it crashing? So um, that, that's been a little bit, of, not too rough of a road. There was one ARM CPU problem that they ran into, but overall, uh, the role has been smooth. And of course, the exciting part, if you're not familiar with the PFSense firewall, the exciting part is they now integrate the WireGuard VPN. And uh, so I've done a series of videos on that. I have, I have a love-hate relationship still with WireGuard. I, I like it. Uh, I think, Tony, you've tested it in the past. Am I correct? Yeah, we did some simple testing just between a static server and, and my laptop and, and, uh, and Phil's laptop. And but, we were able to communicate back and forth across the VPN. The, the challenge with WireGuard is everyone's so happy about it being such a quiet protocol. That also means if you send a malformed packet to it or a packet that doesn't have the right security settings in it, it doesn't tell you. It just doesn't pass traffic, but it doesn't tell you why it's not passing traffic, mm. leaving it up to you to spend hours figuring it out. Um, so that's been a little bit of a challenge. And I think I'm going to uh, open a ticket eventually with the PFSense engineers. And I, I know some of them directly, so I may just reach out directly to them and say, you know, before I duplicate work and trying to find a ticket that matches what I'm trying to phrase, essentially there's a level of input validation that I feel needs to be added uh, to the system. One of the things that PFSense I learned will let you do is the way WireGuard works. You have the main WireGuard tunnel and you set up a series of peers. The peers shouldn't overlap on their networks, but they can. There's use cases for it, but it doesn't validate 
when you have overlapping peers. And if you have overlapping peers, the first peer works and every overlapped peer in the network range won't work subsequently after that. So there's been some little nuance for when you set up a site to site, it works all the time. But when you're doing a site to multi-site or multiple peers, there's a lot of little stuff you have to deal with. Um, uh, and, yeah. yeah, it's making, and Tony's got a background in network engineering, so he understands where each subnet can't step on the other subnet or you just don't know where to route things. And <laughs> exactly. So you're actually dealing with a uh, whole routing problem. Now, this is also different for VPN people who have used things like OpenVPN in the past because they're used to the client server concept under OpenVPN or several other VPN servers. WireGuard is much more like IPsec where neither side is a server. Both sides are just one side of the tunnel. So there's a symmetry to the tunnel you create where what is the peer on one side is the server on the other side and inverted on each side. So even your phone running WireGuard, you're not loading a WireGuard client on your, on your phone necessarily. You're running the WireGuard server on your phone. It's just really in how you treat the routing and flow of packets. Because generally speaking, when you add a peer such as your phone, you don't necessarily want the WireGuard server communicating back to your phone in the same way like you would do it for a site to site. There's no, no, there's nothing besides the WireGuard IP tunnel IP itself that you need to get to. So explaining all that nuance in a series of videos has been me recording a video twice to get the tutorial out there to make sure people have a good, clear understanding of exactly how to do it. <laughs> mm. But um, I've done it and I've done like so far two videos. I probably have to do one more. Now, I actually did prior to me doing these videos, I did a video that I can just have a reply to because I knew the question was going to come up. One of the things about the way WireGuard works, the beauty of WireGuard and why people like it is they go, oh, wow, it's a simple protocol. I feel as though WireGuard cheated and so to speak, to call it a simple protocol. If you look at something like OpenVPN, it has entire facilities for integration for such things as two-factor, as username, as password. And there's even ways to tie it into federated authentication servers such as Active Directory. WireGuard says, we don't have usernames and passwords. That's not our problem. So it, it is also, it is a lightweight protocol. It doesn't have as many lines of code, but it also only supports a single cipher and has no concept of a username and password. They're like, that's not our problem. That is for someone else to engineer. So there's a lot of code that isn't in there. And sometimes is much, you know how kind of, there's a lot of excitement and when a new product comes out and everyone gets excited thinking it will replace some other product because it's faster. Therefore it must be better. It's, it has a, you know, even uh, Linus Torvalds himself was kind of admiring the code and how efficient it was. So that means it's just going to replace open VPN everywhere. And it's quickly realizing to people that it's not, it's going to um, be very slowly adopted. It'll be probably quickly adopted in site to site tunnels where it's kind of an easy drop in, but for general usage, you know, as anyone who's worked in corporate uh, with large VPNs, you can't just rely on some, you know, arbitrary keys being generated each time for each user. You need actual passwords. You need it tied to their, whatever their authentication server on the back end is. Uh, so you can keep track of all these users and where they're going. You also have to manually assign every IP address internally and externally to it. There's no concept of DHCP or just handing from a pool. That doesn't mm -hmm. happen that way because prior to the connection, 
the endpoints have to know their IP addresses prior so they can't get assigned dynamically. Well, not easily. You could build a third-party service, but once again, now you've gone outside of WireGuard. All of this nuance has led to lots of time being sunk into this project to try to make sure I can be as clear as possible with my tutorials on it, while also making sure my staff understands it uh, top to bottom, because immediately as soon as PFSense 2.5 is released, the request and you know part of what we do as a business is helping companies get things set up. The requests are flying in for helping WireGuard. <laughs> really? Wow. It does so, have a speed advantage over IPsec for sure. Oh yeah, yeah, and that makes sense. Uh, but I was uh, for some reason I thought your like core uh, customers would would do more of like uh, 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 what do you call it uh, where they're like their their laptop trying to connect in, you know, instead we of probably, site to site. So there we have two two sets of customers essentially we we have all the open vpn that's not changing at all that we are going to keep running that's all the like business customers we have where we maintain our business mm-hmm. a big expansion we've done over the last year and actually it's fair enough because me and tony have not really hung out and just kind of talked in person for a little while yeah. um, a lot of what my company's shifted to over the last uh, year dramatically so is doing consulting work and uh, so other IS, uh, IT companies or even managed service providers call us to help deploy things. So mm-hmm. we've now been doing consulting literally around the world. We got companies in the Netherlands, France, England. Uh, we have a couple of big ones in England now that we, I just love the guy's accent. We almost want to talk to him when he calls because he's got the thickest accent and he's got a cat that he, uh, he, he yells profanities at in, in his English way <laughs> occasionally. So it makes it wonderful to listen to him. <laughs> it's, it's really fun. Um, but yeah, we have a lot of clients and we help them set some of these things up. So as they are moving and doing different deployments, uh, that kind of consulting, that's kind of a growth of my business from uh, YouTube to offer that type of consulting work. Cause people say, Hey, I'd like to hire you for a project. So we kind of shifted our YouTube around to allow people to easily interact and hire us. And it's all stuff we can completely do remotely. Uh, so it fit really well into the events of 2020. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. That's very cool. Yeah. Um, the other, a little bit of a side project is diving more and more into um, XCPNG and playing around with it. I've uh, talked about the project I, I kind of want to do a next series of where this is used in corporate America. And even Jay has talked about considering trying it out over Proxmox uh, when it comes to doing some of the, you know, using it as a hypervisor. And it, for those of you, little background, XCPNG is actually a open source spin of the Zen server. Uh, Citrix Zen server was really popular for a while. Citrix made some missteps and those missteps uh, made by Citrix to just do some really lousy uh, way they treated their customers, got a Kickstarter going with a group of people uh, with a programming company called Vates. Vates did this Kickstarter. It got more than double the funding they were looking for. So many people donated to the project and uh, the XCPNG open source hypervisor was born. And it really does compete at a high level at places like VMware. Um, Citrix Sensor, it it was is more popular than people realize at large scale hosting companies. And uh, Phil, who's been on this podcast 
for a while. He's he's taking a break right now for those who are wondering what happened to Phil uh, doing the family thing and uh, learning all the troubles and tribulations that come with starting a family and having a new baby. So he's taking a break right now for other commitments, but uh, Phil has dealt with it at large scale as well. So all these companies are now switching to XCPNG because it's a drop-in replacement for Citrix without mm-hmm. all the... Uh, headache of dealing with Citrix. So I've been doing a few more projects on that and showing just how scalable it is and to thousands of servers running and stuff. Uh, so that's been my other project. So it, it, those are the things I've been working on for the last couple of months. And, and anyone who follows me on YouTube kind of knows it because there's just kind of a lot of drops of videos. And of course, the, the videos coming up, the next project is going to be, I have a 45 drives storinator in my office with 420 terabytes of storage in it. Uh, 30 hard drives. And uh, those were going to be the next set of videos running uh, Ubuntu with ZFS. Ooh, that has me excited, actually. Yeah, I'm going to let, if you're interested, um, you'll be able to remote in and take a look at it if you want, because it's going to be it's going to be in the lab set up for doing testing. So yes, please. Let's talk. Yeah, Yeah, that's going to be those projects haven't started. Um, my engagement with 45 drives has been really fun. They customized the server. They uh, built it all. They put my logo on it and sent it to me. Now it shipped with Fedora. And of course, uh, well, we, we've mentioned before, I think in December when we did our last podcast, the incident with Fedora and how they're changing things with CentOS and everything else. So now that all those changes, they decided, you know, we don't really want to depend on Red Hat and some of their issues. And so 45 Drives is shifting to ramp up their Ubuntu uh, based OS. Uh, 45 Drives is interesting. And I think one of the reasons they're reaching out to me as a channel is they want to talk about some of the really high end solutions they provide around things like uh, Ceph and Gluster and really large scale scalable storage. So that'll be some of what the videos are focused on, but you know, you know, it'll be fun for doing other projects as well. And if you don't know what 45 drives looks like, check it out at 45drives.com and check out Backblaze who uses a lot of their chassis uh, for enterprise storage. But that's, that's me since December. <laughs> yeah. That's all. <laughs> well, that's you know, there's probably a few other things scattered around. Something, something, solar winds. I don't, that's not really a Linux or open source, but <laughs> yes, I did do. I've done a series of videos on solar winds to, to try to break down the timeline and confusion of all that. But I won't get I won't get too off topic on that. Everyone knows that the solar winds event happened. I mean, how often does a company end up in Senate hearings that wasn't about social media stealing your data? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Actually, I, I have a feeling companies like Facebook, like, oh, good. It's you guys now. They're not worried about us anymore. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the focus sure has shifted. Mm-hmm. Mark Zuckerberg, who? They're not worried about him. They're, they're grilling uh, CEOs of Microsoft, uh, FireEye, and SolarWinds. They're all, they were all in the hot seat uh, last Tuesday, I think it was, um, when the Sunday hearings were done. I actually took the time to watch them to create my videos, so... Like I said, I won't get too far off topic, but I do have an entire deep dive I do into it, including my aggravation for those of you that aren't familiar with this. Microsoft decided to call the event different than the other cybersecurity companies. And they make a note in their in their reports like, oh, other companies called this this, but we called it that just to clear things up because we needed to muddy the waters and, and cause people to ask, why are there two different names for what seems to be the same breach? Because Microsoft. <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, that's life. 
Tony knows about that. He works a little bit in security doing some of the things you do. So, <laughs> oh yeah. 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 We're not getting into this cause it's not um, like DDoS related, but yeah. uh, it is, uh, it is something interesting. Uh, I was listening to the risk risky business podcast oh, yeah. today. Yep. They were talking a, a little bit about it um, on the last episode, but uh, what was interesting is that there's all these uh, other attacks or or hacks that they're being that's being investigated right now that uses similar uh, techniques, and so they're calling it all these other attacks. They're calling it the Solar Winds, uh, you know, Solar Gate thing yeah. also, but which really isn't related to to Solar Winds. Yet, because it's a similar technique, they're still like calling it the solar gate. Yes, that it, it is really adding confusion to everything that goes on in that space. Uh, it's it can be challenging. And, you know, I, I get it that a lot of people want more news on it because they've asked me to kind of cover it. I do it in sections because I don't look at myself as a news channel. I find this to be an interesting enough attack that I took the time to put it put together a deep dive on it. But it's still a lot, and, um, and it's kind of a natural evolution when a security researcher, you know, they want to publish interesting work. And so the more they dive into poking at even the SolarWinds product, there's three more hacks unrelated in any way because they were never used in the wild, but there were more flaws found in the SolarWinds Orion product line. So that, of course, created more confusion. People like, oh, someone found another exploit. Yeah, but it had nothing to do with being used. It's just the fact that solar winds everyone wants to vet it right now so let's go through and vet the product and why not because if you say solar winds and your security research company the news picks it up and starts talking to you so the cycle continues <laughs> oh yeah so what linux related things have you been doing tony oh i've been uh i've been doing a lot of little projects around the house uh and but doing simple uh raspberry pi projects so I uh, wanted to expand or, or replace my offsite backups. So I got, uh, uh, I did two of these. I, I got a Raspberry Pi 4 with a gig and a eight terabyte drive. And uh, I took the, some Velcro, some like double-sided tape Velcro, Velcroed the Raspberry Pi on one side, power bricks on the other with, uh, with like an extension cord. And then you got a wireless backup. Uh, so I convinced my in-laws to let me put one there. And then my sister on the other side of the state, I put one at her house too. And uh, so I have some offsite backups of my free NAS now. Oh, nice. Yeah. And, and I said, it's simple. It's because there's nothing really to install uh, it, other than setting up like SSH keys and everything. The free NAS backup I'm doing is, is uh, our sync. So it's just, you know, uh, make sure it can SSH to the box and uh, you're good to go. That's awesome. Yeah. I set up um, for uh, to secure the SSH connection. I set up fail to ban. And I, I love that, that uh, program. Yeah. Fail to ban is great. Oh, yeah. And I've, I've been watching the logs for it and it's showing like so many, uh, I think, in the first two weeks I had it running, it failed, it, it, uh, banned over 300 IPs. <laughs> I gotta, is... I'll look it up and send to you afterwards. Cause I can't remember the name right now, 
Um, because I, I have it bookmarked oddly at my office, but not here for weird reasons. Uh, but there's a there's an updated version. Someone took fail to ban and enhanced it with uh, some intelligence where it shares with other servers. If I find that mm. project, I think I have as I want to do a video on it because it looks really interesting, but I haven't had a chance to play it. I'll send it to you if you case you want to play with it. It's the concept of taking fail to ban to the next level and going, we know these IPs are bad, so it can pull in feeds to pre-ban lots of common threats that are seen. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's Great really idea. neat. That's actually built into a fail to ban to be able to pull uh, other blacklists and stuff. Okay. Uh, but I'm sure they put some integration in with actual feeds out there available because it just has like a line. Do you want to enable this? Yes. And then what's the URL? Yeah, I, this had I'm, some, that's what it, it caught me. It's like I bookmarked it and I, well, I didn't really bookmark it. I stuck it in a tab and I said, I'm going to look at this. And it, when you said the fail to ban, I'm like, that's still in a tab pinned <laughs> from about a month ago. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Cause I got tied up with these other projects and just said, I look, I see that pin tabbed. I'm like, that looks like a thing I should play with. <laughs> right. What's also cool about it is you can have it instead of just writing a, uh, you know, a, firewall rule on your local machine you can have it run commands so you could probably have it do an ssh connection over to like your border firewall and ban the ip from there also uh, which is neat and so you, there's so much uh, extension that that's available to it and the what's what i really like about it is just how simple it is that it, all it does is it watches your logs of your authentication logs whether it's anything you're running you know so ssh is by default but you can turn on, you can have it watch your HTTP logs. And uh, whenever it sees banned or failed logins there, it can start banning those IPs. And, and it's just really cool. Nice. Um, kind of related. Have you watched any of or read any of his blog posts by uh, Jeff Geerling, G-E-E-R-L-I-N-G, on building his Raspberry Pi SATA raids? He hmm. is so great. I haven't. He's got some really good write-ups and videos to go with them. Uh, I like the way he does both. He does, because uh, I prefer actually to read. As much as I produce YouTube content, I prefer to read it. But he's got a whole series on building SATA RAID with controller cards that have SATA ports on it that plug into Raspberries with Raspberry Pi compute modules. So, uh, yeah, he builds some pretty slick RAID servers that I'm. it's been impressive. Uh, that are all, you know, there, you have standard SATA interface. He even has dock interfaces and cool builds, but it's all related to tying them together to build them on Raspberry Pi. So it might be a neat way to extend your product because he has all the links to all the hardware you need to build that out. So it's still the Raspberry Pi, but a step further with like four hard drives plugged into it. They're all SATA. That's awesome. Yeah, they're all Raspberry Pi NAS systems. If you just if you type in Raspberry Pi RAID, he's now the first result because he's had he's done a whole series on these. It's been great. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, and then the other thing I've been working on is setting up little uh, security cameras around my house. Uh, so I'm doing that with uh, Raspberry Pi Zeros, and uh, and then one of those I, I found uh, some cameras online on Amazon that has uh, the IR and has automatic IR cut filter oh, nice. cut. Yeah. So as soon as it gets dark, then it'll cut over to, it'll change the filter on the can on the lens to go to IR and then have the IR uh, LEDs running. And um, yeah, it's really convenient. Uh, so I have that, I have one set up in my garage 
I was trying to set one up for outside, but those I those IR LEDs are fairly short range. Yeah. Um, so you you only get the person when they're like, you know, within ten feet of you or whatever. That's what I used before for my uh, Raspberry Pi sump pump camera. Was I use Motion Eye with one of those IR cameras, so I mm-hmm. could watch my sump pump in the dark to make sure it didn't uh, overflow. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. And that's exactly what I'm using is Motion Eye. Yeah, yep. Motion Eye is great for that. That is a wonderful project. Yeah, I really like it. Uh, although now that I'm adding more Raspberry Pis to it, then I'm going to use Motion Eye as the the OS on the Pi just to get the web feed out or the video feed. And then I'm debating on what program uh, to run on my, uh, on a server where I can have like five or six feeds come in. Well, it turns out if you do a little reading on this, you'll find, and I haven't tested this, but I noticed part of what is the repository for TrueNAS now is MotionEye. And mm-hmm. it will run MotionEye inside of a free BSD jail that will pull all the feeds from all your cameras. And of course, the fact that it runs on TrueNAS means you have a place to store everything. So you can have it be the central feed. It's fast enough. You use your Raspberry Pi Zeros just to create some data and send it back. And then the TrueNAS server can collect it and have the storage to be able to, you know, archive everything. Nice. I was trying to look that up to see if they there was a jail for it. Um, I tried... <laughs> I tried building, just creating a, my own jail with Motion, uh, and because everything I looked up for Motion I that there was there was no like BSD port for it. Yeah, I haven't. I, that's what I thought was weird too. When I seen it pop up in the jail list, I'm like, that's neat that it's in the jail list, but I didn't realize. I thought it was always an ARM compiled thing. So uh, mm-hmm. it's been on one of those. I want to build a squirrel camera because we have squirrels in the backyard and my wife thinks it's weird that I just kind of watch them, but it's been nice in the morning. Mm-hmm. I get my coffee and I watch the squirrels. So yeah. I said, I, I kind of want a squirrel cam as I put a feeder out there. And it seems like that would be an entertaining thing for me to, to watch the squirrels eat the food. So I don't need a, I don't need a night vision one because they're, they're daytime animals, but I thought it'd be kind of cool to archive all my squirrel footage. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. We actually have a squirrel feeder in our yard too. It's actually for birds, but this uh, one squirrel in particular, who's kind of overweight, just decides to um, cram himself into the bird feeder and eat all of the bird seed, like all of it, as in like Mm -hmm. um, ate all the bird seed out of the bird feeder and then tore into the bag of bird seed and ate that too. Oh man. I know it was cute squirrel, but oh my God, ate me out of the bird seed. Yeah. Yeah, I I bought a giant bag of corn because it's, it's cheap and the squirrels like it and uh, I can afford to feed them that way. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Uh, but that's about it for what I've been doing. So, so my, yeah. Um, gosh, I don't even know where to begin. Um, Cause as, as I, you know, before we started recording, I'm like, I don't really think I have all that much, but then when you guys are talking, you reminded me of everything that's happened. Uh, so I guess I do mm-hmm. have a few things. Um, so one of which has been, you know, every now and then I go through my home lab, my servers, networks and things, and just try to configure everything, maybe find a better way to do things, faster way to do things. So in PF Sense, I did a number of changes and, and Tom's probably snickering because he helped me actually fix one, but he, he actually was um, moral support and was there when I found the problem, which was a um, rogue DNS server. And it was a rogue DNS server because I put it there and forgot I did. 
But <laughs> other than that weird problem that took me uh, way too long to figure out than I'd like to admit, I enabled DNSSEC. Uh, that's uh, something I've been wanting to do for a while. And uh, PF blocker, which I finally got around to doing. And I'm having a, a, a few issues though, like DNA with DNSSEC. I think my problem might be related to the new version of PFSense, but I haven't been able to prove that yet. I did find a forum post where some people are complaining about SSL errors on DNSSEC. And when I first started looking into it, I found that I have to have a specific host name for um, the DNS to work, which I, I did fix. That resolved like 95% of it. But there's still a few sites out there that'll just give me an SSL error. And um, I was just Googling around and I found a Reddit post with, um, I don't know, maybe five or six people complaining about this on the latest version of PFSense. So either that means we all did the same wrong thing when we set it up or there's an actual problem. I don't know which quite yet. So that was mm -hmm. um, my adventure with PFSense, which is kind of still going on. And... I started getting into Home Assistant very heavily, which I've had for over a year. But it's just one of those things that's on my network that I set up once and I kind of moved on to other things. But lately I'm like, oh, it's, it's all of a sudden time to get back into that again. And I did, and I, I've just been configuring Home Assistant and getting kind of obsessed with it. And for those of you out there listening that have no idea what the heck I'm talking about, um, Home Assistant is a application or it's also an operating system. There's two versions. There's an operating system you can get to run on your Pi, or you could just install it. And it's for, well, as the name would imply, home assistant. It's for IoT type things for your smart cameras. Well, maybe not so much smart cameras, but like switches and, and all that fun stuff. It'll, you could use it to turn on your TVs, your, um, your smart mm -hmm. bulbs, smart switches and things like that as a web interface so you can log in. It can, uh, there's an app for your phone too that you can use that it could tie into. Um, and I've, I've been just configuring the heck out of it and having a lot of fun with that. Um, yeah, it's like, it's the, it's the replacement for the, the gateway box that all these different IOT devices have that you can buy for them. So, yep. um, yep. so like if you have a separate box for like Hughes and then somebody will have a separate box for, uh, what blink cameras or, or things like that, you can use Home Assistant to tie all those together in one box. Yeah, that's a great explanation. And I like the fact that it has a, a bunch of different integrations is what they call it, because even if you have a proprietary system, um, and let's face it, who has the money to just replace all their things just because they <laughs> decided that, you know, maybe I shouldn't have gone with the proprietary solution. I had some uh, proprietary smart plugs, which I'll get to a funny story in a moment. But um, what I could do is integrate those directly into it. There's a mm -hmm. integration with Roku, so you can put your Roku's on this. Um, it could even like say, show what's being watched on the TV. I don't know why I need to know that, but mm -hmm. you know you can do it. And you could do wake on LAN with this to turn on things that can receive a wake on LAN packet, for example. Um, there's so many different things that you can high into this thing like it's literally watching the power usage of my turtle tank filters i'm not even kidding um it's it's to that level so nice. i know how much power usage everything that uses a lot of power you can use it also speaking of my turtle tanks it turns on the, their basking lights and turns them off during this appropriate time i have the mm. lamps in the living room synchronized to um sunset so whenever it's sunset which obviously the time of sunset changes throughout the year 
is going to turn on the lights in the living room as soon as it starts to be, well, sunset. And then I tell it to cut those out at about 11, 11.30. Nobody's up at that point. Um, so I take care of that. I have it able to toggle my recording lights for the YouTube studio side of things. So I'm really going into this. Um, it's this rabbit hole of fun that when you first start using it, oh yeah, this is pretty cool. But then when you see all the different things you can do, it gets, it's crazy, but it's also a learning curve, not because it's hard, it's actually kind mm -hmm. of on the easy side, in my opinion, but it's just that the way that you do things in Home Assistant is not like the way you'd think they'd be done in any other user interface. It's a great interface. It's just different. And once you learn the difference, it's not like you have to learn anything on a coding level or anything like that, but they just have things in an interesting place, but it makes sense once you get the hang of it. So I've been really getting into that. Um, and it led to the most um, annoying network situation that I've ever had in my entire career. Really? And so I'm, you know, I'm sitting down with my kids and, you know, I have a PS5 because for some reason I managed to snag one back in December when they were really mm. hard to get. So, which is cool. I have a PS5. Yeah. So it's time to play the PlayStation 5. So I sit down, I turn it on, we get to the title screen and it cuts off. I'm like, what? what's going on? Turn it back on, get to the title screen, it cuts off. Then the TV cuts off. I turn the TV on, my server rack goes out. I'm mm. like, what's going on? So I turn on the server rack. Um, and then my studio PC UPS starts beep, beeping at me. My desktop UPS starts beeping at me. Both of them are not connected, but then they are. And then they stop um, beeping at me. Um, I try to turn on another TV that goes off. The light, the LED lights in my office go off. I turn them back on uh, five minutes later, they go off. And I'm just trying oh. to sit, I'm just trying to sit down and play a game. That's all I want to do. I want to have a half an hour, you know, I just want to play some games with the kids. And um, and I just keep trying to get to the title screen and it's like the PlayStation just keeps getting cut off. So I have to wait through a file system check because it's like the power got yanked. So mm. what I found out, this is hilarious. So I decided to flash the firmware of all my smart plugs, which went fine. I tested it and it works as intended. I can toggle it on and off. Um, I left it on for a few hours, no problems. So then I'm like, oh yeah, I didn't, update the smart plug that my internet equipment is on. I have a power strip that's connected to a smart plug and attached to that power strip is my um, PFSense firewall, my cable modem, and the Unify switch that powers all my Wi-Fi access points over power over ethernet. So I flash that smart plug and it's fine. I wait like 30 minutes, it's fine. So, okay, it's time to go grab dinner. I come back down and that's when all that started to happen. And then I realized, mm -hmm. When you flash the firmware, it defaults to off. So as soon as I flash the firmware, the smart plug to the internet devices, it actually cut that off. I didn't hear the beeping. So my UPS was draining because I have all that in a UPS. Oh. But once the UPS gets empty, then the Wi-Fi access points cut out, PFSense cuts out, cable modem cuts out. Mm. And what I found out is that when you use open source firmware on the smart plugs, if they don't get a, if they don't have an internet connection, they have this thing where they power cycle and they power cycle an attempt to reconnect to a Wi-Fi access point. It's kind of like one of those things like if you don't have a route to the internet and it can't repair itself, it's just going to reboot. It's a default setting in the firmware. Mm, yeah. So the smart plugs kept cutting out and turning back on. So every time they power cycled, whatever's attached to them, the power gets cut and then it comes back. Now, 
I will say it's really hard to connect a home assistant to fix the problem when your networking doesn't work. Now think about that for a minute. <laughs> yeah. This whole situation cuts out the, all your internet devices, but you need to get you know, access to your home assistant server to fix it, but you have no internet access. Right. So I'm like, okay, I go into the closet once I figured it out and I press the button on the, on the um, smart plug, which of course restores power to the UPS and immediately PFSense comes online and the Unify mm -hmm. switch comes up and everything starts to work again. But I was just like getting very annoyed. It was actually kind of funny now that I think about it. Um, but I guess it does teach you a lesson when you want to, you know, integrate Wi-Fi into all the things. Um, <laughs> you're actually integrating Wi-Fi into all the things and you're kind of at its mercy at that point. So just keep that in mind. It was kind of funny, but really frustrating. Yeah. Yeah, um, no, that's really cool. And so yeah. I don't, I don't know if I'd want to put a smart plug on, you know, put my internet stuff on a smart plug, yep. but it does make sense if you want to be able to monitor how much power it's using. That's exactly why I did it. Originally, when I first started, I mean, I, I used to have, I mean, when I first started, I mean, like way back when cable modems are kind of brand new, you know, Comcast always tell you reboot it. Anytime you have a problem, they tell you to reset your modem, um, which I think is mostly BS. But anyway, um, I just had a power strip and I would just flick the button, cut the power, turn it back on. That way, if anyone in my house, if I wasn't home, was having trouble with the internet, I'd, I'd just say, yeah, just cut the power to the power strip and press the button, mm -hmm. it'll come back on. Causes everything attached to it to reboot. I don't really feel there's any use to do that, but then I am monitoring power usage. That's been a kind of a big thing for me. And that is actually why I have the smart plug. Thankfully, there's a setting you can, you can basically make it default on and that never happens. Mm -hmm. um, and you could also make it not cut the power to basically anything. You could do like more of a soft reboot instead of like a full on, like abrupt reboot. Again, I, I knew I kind of brought it on myself when I decided to flash the firmware with open source firmware, but I decided randomly, Hey, that's the thing I'm doing today. So that's the thing I did. Yeah. Um, that was my random project of the day. Um, that was fun though. Um, speaking of YouTube stuff. So I don't remember what all I mentioned last time, but I implemented new branding, like new intros and everything to my YouTube channel, learnlinux.tv for those that don't already know. So I think it personally, I think it looks a lot more professional now with the intro and everything. I'm really pleased with the way that it turned out, new logo, um, new style. So I, I think that's pretty neat and people seem to like it. So I'm pleased. And I am I'm actually in a room full of hardware to review. I'm going to probably do a lot of hardware related videos coming up. Um, maybe possibly more than normal because I have done this every now and then, but I have a pile of Raspberry Pi and Raspberry Pi related uh, hardware on open for videos. For example, power over ethernet hats. I have those. I'm going to show those in a video. I have a um, tower rack. Um, case for the pies that's like 12 layers so you could have 12 raspberry pies on this thing so think about 12 raspberry pies with power over ethernet hats attached to them so i'm going to just make a basically basically like a server rack and for those of you that have seen my videos you'll notice that there's glowing fans in the background inside the server rack mm -hmm. those are raspberry pi cases those each have four and this is one of those but it's a lot taller and it has 12 
So you could have 12 Raspberry Pis or you could mount a couple SSDs into there. Um, it doesn't have to be a Raspberry Pi at every layer. Um, the power over ethernet hats make it a lot cleaner. So, so you don't have wires everywhere. I bought some SSDs specifically for these. And then I also grabbed some Argon One Raspberry Pi cases. That's my current favorite um, standalone case that has a built-in um, M SATA SSD slot in the case. Mm. So you could you could attach an SSD to it. It's still at the mercy of USB with this case, unfortunately. But I'm going to be looking into setting that up, which already means uh, um, RetroPie videos potentially and a couple NAS videos for setting up like Open Media Vault. I'm probably going to do that too. And not to be undone, I have, you know, Tom mentioned Synology. I have two boxes full of Synology stuff sent to me from them because they're actually um, thinking about sponsoring the channel. So they sent me like eight terabytes worth of hard drives and a unit. So I have to get that out unboxed and review that. That's going to be fun. And I'm not done yet. I've been saving up for a new tower because I felt like video renders are taking a long time and the upgrade to 4K has been kind of a pain for me. Mm. So I ordered a brand new Thelio from System76, this, the Thelio Major with 64 gigs of RAM. I forgot which NVIDIA card it is. It's, a, it's not the top of the line, but it's decent. Um, and a Threadripper CPU with a PCIe 4 storage of it, uh, about one terabyte, I think is what I ordered it with. And with custom engraving on the front, which actually has my YouTube channel etched into the front of the tower. So I was saving up for a while. I was like, now it's time to do it. That's and cool. I did. It's going to be here on Tuesday. And I can't wait to see how fast that cuts through renders. And of course, I'm going to review that as well, probably do an unboxing. So I have a lot of work on my YouTube channel to do um, lately. So um, it's going to be a lot of hardware stuff more than I normally do. I, I might do like one hardware video every other week or one a week at most, but it's like I have, have more hardware stacking up than I have time to review, which I guess is a good problem to have. Mm -hmm. And Tom mentioned um, XDPNG, which, yep, that is true. I'm uh, wanting to look into that. I don't know when I'm going to get to it now that I have all this stuff, but that's something Tom and I talk about a lot, XDPNG and um, Proxmox. Proxmox is what I use, both our virtualization solutions. Um, a little bit of background about that though. Um, I've, I've been a Citrix, excuse me, Citrix user for quite a while. Early in my, early in my career, I did a, um, I was a system administrator for a company and that's what they use. They use Citrix Zen server. And coming from VMware, I loved it. It was just so much fun to work on. I looked forward to working on that every day. I felt like it gave you everything VMware gives you, but um, I can't really put it down to one thing. I just really liked the way that it was designed. I thought everything was very intelligent. It makes sense. Um, I talked to support a number of times because the company had a contract with uh, Citrix. I was pleased with the support on that. Um, and I got kind of taken away from it because um, the job I had after that didn't use it. Then Tom turned me on to XCPNG and um, that being a drop-in replacement, I kind of think of it like LibreOffice, like what that is to OpenOffice. They both still exist, but LibreOffice, in my opinion, has succeeded OpenOffice in much the same way I think XCPNG has succeeded um, Citrix proper. 
So um, that's just my opinion, though, but I really like it a lot. I went with Proxmox because it had built-in support for containers, which at the time, XDP didn't have that, XDPNG didn't have that exposed. But then again, I only uh, run one container, so I guess that wasn't really a reason. But it was at the time, I kind of felt like I liked the fact that Proxmox gives you a selection. You want to create a new, um, do you want to create a VM? Do you want to create a... uh, container you get to choose and then they're both in the same interface which i thought was really slick and it's not that you can't do that in xcpng it's just not baked in and that was just the kind of like the coin toss or the 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 one thing that kind of made me go in the direction of proxmox but i've been kind of thinking that seems like xcpng has more momentum than proxmox has in their development it a lot of exciting things happening there and Proxmox is more status quo. So kind of like the exciting nature of XCPNG, to be honest. Well, they just announced too. I'm excited about this. Um, I've had a problem with the way they run their backup servers. Now it's not that they don't work well. I think they could work better and they finally got to refactoring all the code and it's going to have a series of individual backup jobs that will run simultaneously. They actually, it's really weird how they did the, um, well, didn't do the threading in it because they just didn't expect people to be backing up that many servers at once. So it was never really an issue. And now that they have this full stack backup, they re they, they built two things. One's called a proxy backup and I won't get too detailed what it means, but it's basically for um, remote administration backups, uh, but they refactored all the code and they said, well, we wrote it, let's integrate it into the main system. So uh, there's a lot of new exciting things coming down the pipeline for uh, XCPNG. And like Jay said, they've been really on top of a lot of the cutting edge storage technologies for people who want to build um, some of the scalable SAN side of it. So if you have like extensive storage, going back to like the 45 drives, like I mentioned, Ceph and Gluster, they're building a lot more support for Ceph and Gluster because when you're building out a thousand virtual machines, you've got to have a very reliable storage source. So uh, they're building a lot more on the back end of that to really scale that up. And one thing about that is I, when I was working at that company, I, at the time, I was like, wow, I like this this um, Citrix solution so much that I want to run it at home. I want, to, I, want, I want to run this. And then I'm like, oh, it costs what? Oh, yeah. I all of a sudden don't want to run it at home anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm. But then after that, they made it so that um, it was free. You just have to pay for the support. And my understanding is they changed that yet again later. But um, then when I found out XCPNG was like the drop-in replacement of Citrix, it, it got me really excited. I'm like, you know, I, I could actually relive those fond memories of when I was supporting that system back then, and I could actually use it now. But what really made me look at it, because Tom and I have been thinking about this for a while and, and talking about this for a while, but um, it's actually coming up for renewal because I did buy support for Proxmox. And now that it's coming up for renewal, I'm like, hmm maybe I might want to try something else just to see if I still want to keep going that direction or if I want to go a different direction. Maybe I should set it up in my lab and just figure out which one I truly like between the two because before I pay for Proxmox, I want to know that is XCPNG better for me? I don't know. Maybe it's worth a shot. Yeah. And uh, a fun little 
tidbit of history is the core project itself, the Zen hypervisor, which has been in the Linux kernel for a long time, as far as integration and support, um, that actually dates back to its initial release from October of 2003. It's actually one of the original popular hypervisor project and still runs, to my knowledge, that hypervisor, not XCPNG, because uh, XCPNG is based on a Zen hypervisor, but it still runs most of the workloads inside of the Amazon uh, servers. I got a little familiar with Zen. Um, I'm not as familiar with it, but I had a coworker, one of the most brilliant people I've ever met. He, um, he works at Red Hat now, which I can understand why they snagged him up. But I worked at that company. I go over to his desk and he had, um, you know, it looked like open box, just a window manager. So nothing out of the ordinary. But when I got talking to him, and this is before Cubes OS, either before Cubes OS which is a distribution of Linux that is heavily um, focused on uh, compartmentalizing um, all the uh, different applications into different virtual machines. But he basically rolled his own, like his way of using his desktop was his, basically he was running Zen yep. on, that, on that computer. And he was doing some kind of either X window forwarding or um, SSH X forwarding of some kind that where he had all his applications running in different VMs, but he would forward it to the same GUI so that they show up on his monitor as if it's all the same distribution. And he did it himself. And I was, I saw this and I was just so blown away. I'm like, oh my God, this is just genius and time consuming and probably, you know, tedious to set up, but he did it. And it was just one of the most fascinating um, desktop Linux installs I've ever seen. But um, it was, it was awesome. And I, I looked at it then, I'm like, wow, this is really cool. I didn't know you could do all that. So then I started looking more into um, Zen server and whatnot at that time as well. So um, there's a lot of exciting technologies out there and clever ways to use it. Yeah. And Cube still to this day runs based on the Zen kernel as its core. You know, I, I, I get a lot of review or, you know, requests for reviews of Cubes and I have, I started to actually work on a review and the review is so negative. I, I didn't even want to upload it and I didn't. Because, it's challenging. Well, it wasn't so much that it was challenging because I do understand that with something like that, you're going to have a higher barrier of entry, but um, it's actually Phil and I were working on it. He um, was trying to, he was thinking about buying a computer, forgot what kind it was, but it was a model that I had and it wasn't even the newest thing out. It was, you know, maybe a year old itch I'm, I'm guessing or the tips that was a year old cubes os would not run on it at all um and i tried it on an older computer of mine still wouldn't run and i'm like so i have to run a computer that's two or three years old just to run cubes os because the kernel and driver stack is from a very very old fedora version that's probably like five or six versions behind and they think that's okay for desktops like you have to have an old computer like what are they doing because um, usually, I don't care how good you are with Linux, you generally want networking, I assume, but that's impossible on all the hardware that I had, unless I wanted to custom compile a kernel module of some kind. And at that point, I just gave up on it because I don't mind it being hard. I mean, keep in mind, I can run Arch Linux and I, I actually probably have the install process memorized by now. But that to me just really turned me off. And I just said, this just isn't, it isn't something I want to review because what am I going to say? I tried for five hours to get it working and I couldn't. Um, 
no, I don't think I want to do that because then people are going to be upset with me for talking down on it, which they probably are now, to be honest, now that they've heard it in the podcast. But in all seriousness, um, that really didn't work out for me. Maybe this, maybe it's better now. I mean, that was over a year ago, so maybe it's not a problem anymore. But speaking of difficult installations, on Wednesday, I have the longest Arch Linux video I've ever done that's going to be uploaded on Wednesday. It's mm. two or just shy of two hours long, and it shows you how to do three different types of installations. It's basically a refresh of the Arch Linux series that I've already had. I do the refresh of it every now and then, but it's all in one video. It's like an hour and 58 minutes long. It's, I got time codes in there, so you don't have to actually watch the whole thing, but it's pretty much everything you'd want to know about installing Arch Linux from like the command line, building it all the way to GNOME or XFCE or Mate or Plasma all in one video. And I am usually wrong when I predict this kind of thing, but I think this one's going to be a big video because people seem to really like Arch Linux and I'm not sure if anything like this exists yet. I guess I'll find out on Wednesday. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad. Hopefully it will be good or, uh, oh, a, you know, a popular one. I hope that, I just hope it's helpful for people because I know a lot of people might struggle with the installation. So I rehearsed this install process. I don't, I don't even know how many times I basically had a VM and I installed Arch, wrote down all the steps. I tore it down rebuilt it and did it again and again and again and again. I literally have been working on this video for a month. I started at the beginning of this month and it's just now finished. Mm. So um, I hope it's a good one. I hope it helps people get it installed. So if anyone listening is um, curious about setting up Arch Linux, um, check my channel, learnlinux.tv on Wednesday, and you should expect to find a video on there about that. Cool. And for those listening, it's February 28th, and it's actually Sunday we're recording. So uh, that's Wednesday, Wednesday, that would be March 3rd, I believe. Yeah, yep, March 3rd. Yep. Okay, I'm math, right. Forgetting that people aren't listening <laughs> in real time. <laughs> not that anyone, not that I do live streams all that often, but um, oh, speaking of which, I'm not going to give it away in this video. I think Tom knows what I'm talking about, but pay attention to Tom's channel and my channel on Wednesday. I'm not going to say what it is, but I think people will like it. We're working on stuff. <laughs> We're doing a thing. Cool. But oh, that that's was a, a lot. lot. But... <laughs> well, yeah. but don't worry. We're trying to get this more regular and we still do a lot in between. So we're, we're, uh, there'll still be more to talk about even if we make this more frequent in which we're working on. It has been a calamity of errors. Uh, every time we try to get together, it turns out coordinating three people in even though everyone's sheltering in place to some extent, it's still kind of challenging. <laughs> yeah, in my case, I feel like, I mean, obviously this is a horrible situation nowadays for a lot of people and a lot of people have it worse than I do. But I guess if, if I complain about um, working more hours than I used to, I guess that's not really something to complain about, but that just kind of seems to be the case for me and a lot of people that I know of that, you know, they don't commute because, you know, sheltering in place they're working from home so they might get more things done maybe they have a hard time like i do stopping working and switching to home mode whatever it is but yeah it can be kind of challenging oh yeah and just you know figuring out timings of everything else i i never complain i kind of joke that my life is just some weird collection of first world problems and i'm, I'm aware enough of them so i never complain about them <laughs> 
So, Tom, you brought up having a browser tab that uh, you don't have with you that's on a different computer. It kind of reminded me of an idea I had or something I wish existed, but I don't think it does. And either this is a very stupid idea or maybe it's brilliant. I have no idea. Um, for those, So, you know about sync thing, obviously, if you want to sync your files from your laptop or your desktop back and forth, you can make sure maybe a directory in your home directory, maybe your documents directory on your laptop is the exact same as that on your other computer. And you delete a file from one, it's deleted from the other, you add a file, it's added to the other, full synchronization two ways. Sometimes I wish that we had true browser sync. And yes, we have browser sync. Every browser has this, you sign in unless it's Chromium because they're taking that away from us. But you have Firefox, uh, Google Chrome, you know, you could access, you could see a list of tabs that's open on your other computer, but that to me, doesn't imply syncing. I wish that we had syncing so good that if I opened a tab on my laptop, that same tab would open on my desktop. And if I closed it on my desktop, it would actually also close it on my laptop. So we had sync to the point where no matter what computer you're using, you do one on one, it's done to the other as far as what tabs you have open. I know that could be very challenging, but- But it I does really exist. Wish that it does it, how? Yeah. It's a, uh, it's not native to the browsers and uh, I do not know the name of it, but there's even a way, cause I started looking at this um, a while ago, but then I kind of got sidetracked. Uh, one of my friends had showed me a plugin that does something similar where it can see all the other tabs open and actually create a sync between all the tabs open where you, you have to tell it to do so. Um, but it would, it could remember all the tabs and reopen them in the same way, but then it had a way of syncing it as a plugin. The name of the plugin eludes me because there used to be before Firefox integrated it years and years ago, there was a, a tool that had that, the syncing feature. And it was, I, I don't remember the name of that tool. Now it was a cool tool. And I actually paid for it, which was a shame because the company was pretty angry when all the companies started integrating the syncing. They're like, Oh, great. Now you just, you know, torpedoed our business, so to speak, because we actually made a living off syncing browsers because uh, 10 years ago, maybe it wasn't really a thing, mm -hmm. but That's they also had something at. like there's, but there's some, if you look around, there are some plugins like that. I'm just so, so hesitant on loading plugins into my browsers because they represent such a uh, potential security risk right now. Cause so much of yep. what we do in security happens in the browser and uh, there's been a series of security issues where, you know, a popular product, a popular plugin that was free, the person stops developing the project or someone makes an offer of money yeah. on it. And then that gets hijacked and becomes a potential leak of information uh, or more work, even worse, a collector of information um, for nefarious reasons because of a plugin support. So I've been hesitant yeah. to look for more plugins, but you're right. I really wish it was deeply integrated into the browser because if they had tab sync, that would be wonderful. I have, you know, I have my work computer and I have my home computer and the pin tabs are not the same on both. That's true. I have, I think the, the closest thing I've seen that actually exists built into a browser is in iOS. So as an aside, I use an iPhone, I have an iPad. The reason why is because, well, I'm not really a phone person. I'm, I don't care for mobile phones. It's just not my thing. It, I feel like phones are a means to an end. I'm not excited about them. Sometimes I get the reaction, what do you mean you don't use Android? Well, I don't even want a cell phone at all, to be honest. So I'll just pit, stick with the iPhone just because it's uh, slightly less crashy than Android. But anyway, 
Um, what I've noticed on iOS is that if you open up Safari, which has virtually no features at all, but it has this one, you could look at the tabs that are open on your other device and you can literally close a tab that's open on that device from the other device. That's not going to do a full two-way sync, but you can literally look at the list of tabs. Oh, I'm going to pick up that tab on this device. And then you can literally just X out of it on the other device, which I wish Firefox and Chrome had that built in because that would get me almost there. It's still manual, but um, I feel like we're missing some um, quality of life improvements in browsers that we could really be um, benefiting from nowadays. Yeah, well, maybe maybe they'll get there with them. <laughs> maybe there's like a really awesome de developer listening to this podcast and I just gave them an idea to uh, mm -hmm. go ahead and develop it and you can have it. <laughs> But um, no, it's just an aside. I thought I'd get your opinions on that because um, I just feel like if that existed, it would make our lives easier, especially when you have multiple computers and you can't really remember which one you happen to open a specific website on. Hmm. You know, my workflow is more of I browse and do a couple of things and then close out of it when I'm done. Hmm. So it wouldn't really uh, help me a whole lot other than maybe if it was uh, syncing my history but I, I agree with Tom. I have seen a plugin that does this. Um, but then you got to think about what the, the thing is you have to think about is uh, what does it use to do the sync? You know, and then what servers is your data going through to sync that right. back and forth? Uh, so I, I agree. I like your original idea of having something like sync thing or, uh, or some other syncing system that you can control. That would be more ideal than relying on a plugin or or a third party to do the syncing for you. Yeah, I agree. The security thing is a big concern. Another project I'm going to consider working on, if all goes to plan, I'll be able to talk about it next time. But I get a little annoyed that browsers have um, free reign on your RAM. So if, mm -hmm. it, if they want 20 gigs of your memory, they're just going to use it if it's there. They're just going to use it until swap starts happening. And you could probably set memory limits on some browsers. And I'm pretty sure I did hear that in at least one, if not a few, you could actually set a memory ceiling. But I don't think you can do that in Firefox and Chrome unless I'm wrong. But what I thought about doing was looking into just containerizing Firefox. And I'm not the first one to do this. A lot of other people have done this. But I was inspired by this idea from Jeremy from System76, who has a I guess he has a really powerful computer with a lot of RAM. And he was just saying, yeah, a lot of my CPU cores and memory is just being saturated by my browser and it's just happily consuming resources, whatever it wants. And I'm like, yeah, I'm just gonna see how it works in containers. And when I first tried this years ago, it was a train wreck. It didn't work very well at all. But I almost wonder now if I created a container and said, okay, this container ceiling is four gigs of RAM or six or eight or whatever. It just can't have more than that because it'd be the same as running on a computer that only had that much memory. And if I say, oh, it's only able to have four cores, then it could want more cores. It could want more memory. It's not going to get it. And kind of containerizing it there might just be a fun thing. When I tried it before, the challenge was video acceleration and audio syncing. I would have audio that didn't match the lips if I was watching something in YouTube and then it would stutter because it doesn't have the hardware acceleration. 
which can also be kind of difficult if you have an NVIDIA card because you'll handle it differently there than you would if you had an Intel card. So that was probably three or four years ago. So I figured I'm going to look into this again. Maybe the landscape has changed since then. And maybe that might be just a good idea just to keep browsers in check and, and not have free access to whatever it wants. Mm, yeah. Might be a fun experiment or it might be a complete disaster. I guess we're about to find out or not. <laughs> yeah. If I don't mention it, just to <laughs> in, you could assume that it was, uh, it was not a good experience. Uh, that's a lot. That well, was yeah, a lot. Plenty, plenty more to do, which means by the next time we record this, we plenty more to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> but the benefit there is um, hopefully we won't have so much to catch up on um, because, you know, we'll hopefully meet up sooner and not have, oh, by the way, in the past, however long it's been, I've been doing this and this and this and this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, all right, then. Well, so, this was, did, did we come up with a better show title? Hmm. Mm, projects. I don't know. Yeah. Well, we'll just still call it the first reboot then, because it's the the first one after the reboot. <laughs> All right. If if something pops in my head before then, or we'll we'll throw it in the chat. Uh, so you've been listening to episode three hundred and twenty six of the Sunday Morning Linux Review. This is Tom Lawrence, and then we have Tony. Tony Bemis. Jay Lacroix. All right. And thank you for uh, joining us. So I think we still have a few listeners, right? So leave us some feedback. Let us know what you think. Uh, throw some suggestions at us a little bit. But I we're going to try and stick with this new format uh, and skip in the news because, you know, we just want to talk about Linux and projects. And I think that's really what we're about here. So thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you. Hey, thank you.